Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, presented by Conserve the Wild, your destination for an unfiltered look at conservation. Now let's get wild. I would encourage um, participation by anyone that was interested from the community to help with all the activities. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Conservation Unfiltered podcast presented by Conserve the Wild. I'm your host, Jason Creighton, and this is episode number 64, The Balancing Act of Urban Conservation. Now today, I'm going to be talking with Mary Gardner about her work in urban conservation. Mary is a professor of entomology at Ohio State University, and she's a state specialist extension. Mary shares her insights on how to implement conservation methods in an urban setting, the importance of getting the community involved, and why it's important to use this vacant land for conservation. So this is a good one. It really hits home at what we're trying to do at Conserve the Wild. So I feel like this is a, a great aspect, and this is definitely something that could be scaled into cities across our country. So let's dive right into it. Today, I'm joined by Mary Gardner. She is, as you heard in the intro, a professor at Ohio State University. And uh, as a Western Pennsylvania, I won't hold that against her. Uh, we'll keep sports out of this. But uh, Mary, how are you today? I'm doing great, Jason. Thank you for having me. And I actually got my undergrad at University of Michigan. So we do need to keep football out of the conversation today. <laughs> well, thank you for joining me. Um, I came across you and your work uh, by reading an article uh, that um, I think I saw it on Yahoo of all places originally that talked about a research uh, project that, that you did uh, that talks about it's titled The Balancing Act of Urban Conservation. Um, can you just give us a real quick brief overhead of just like what it was you were looking at and what you were trying to accomplish? I can try. So uh, in 2012, I was funded by the National Science Foundation to do this project. And the goal of the study was to determine if we could take vacant lots, which are lots within a city where houses once stood but were removed, uh, and convert those lots to bee habitat that would be um, useful for conserving urban pollinators. And our goal was to determine if native plant communities would support a higher species richness and reproductive success of bees and other insects versus other kinds of green space, such as weedy plant communities that are um, currently on most vacant lots. Uh, and so across the city of Cleveland, which has over 27,000 such lots, we established this large trial where we had uh, eight replicates of different plant communities for a total of 64 vacant lots that we managed with different types of flowering plants and grasses. Uh, and we compared bee communities within all of those vacant lots. So that, this is, uh, and, and as I read, through uh, all the information, had to read it a couple times to, to sort of for my um, my teacher brain to to really comprehend. 
this is completely different than what I personally think of when I think of conservation, because we think, um, and this is basically because of my upbringing, you know, I think of conservation as these large spaces, these big public land uh, projects that we do and having national forest. And in Pennsylvania, we have state game lands for wildlife and things like that. Um, this is on a much smaller scale and in an area of our country that you wouldn't really think about when you think conservation. How, I mean, how, how did you decide that it was important to have urban pollinators? Well, first let me back up and say why I thought it was important to focus on this habitat at all. So uh, there are many uh, legacy cities or shrinking cities across the United States, but most of them are concentrated uh, in the Great Lakes and Eastern region, and they have a manufacturing history. So cities like Detroit um, or steel production like Pittsburgh, um, Cleveland, Erie, many of these cities have lost population over the decades as jobs have moved elsewhere. And as people move out, uh, there's more infrastructure than population to need that infrastructure. And so what happens is uh, residences and some buildings are eventually torn down by the cities and they're managed by those municipalities as vacant lots and vacant lots are mown about once a month. And so the, a lot of people think about them more like turf grass where you're mowing it every week, but in many cities, including Cleveland, that mowing frequency is reduced and so they're actually quite tall in between mowing and they have a lot of floral diversity. And when I first started working at OSU, I lived in Akron and I saw a lot of these lots and I had worked in CRP land, which you might be more familiar with as a conservation project that occurs in ag landscapes that often looks kind of similar. It's a tall grassland. And we know that that kind of habitat supports a lot of pollinators and other beneficial insects. Well, unlike many kinds of insects where you really see a decline as you move into urban areas, research has shown that in some cases, bee communities and cities have just as many species and sometimes even more species than rural comparisons, which is really interesting. And we don't know all the reasons that might be, but bees are pretty good dispersers. And so it's thought that perhaps they're more able to access these fragmented patches of habitat that, than other kinds of insects. And so I thought, well, wouldn't it be cool if we could beautify some of these urban areas with native wildflowers and provide bees with these forage rich small patches that they could access in their foraging behavior. And so that's kind of how the project got started. That's cool because, you know, I, I only live maybe 20 minutes from Pittsburgh. And while there has been some resurgence in Pittsburgh, uh, you still see, you, you know, you come across and you see these areas where it's just obvious, you know, something was there, nothing's there now. It's like you said, it's a vacant lot. It's mowed. I mean, it's, supposed to be mowed once a month. Sometimes it looks like it goes the majority of the summer without being mowed. And it just doesn't look good. Uh, typically you see trash and that kind of things in there. Um, what if people in and around Pittsburgh wanted to sort of do this, right? Take this on, try to transform some of those vacant lots. Like what are their options? What are things that they should be doing to make sure that one, the city's okay with doing it you know, two, that it's actually going to work, it's going to be done right, because, yeah, you could just throw a bunch of wildflower seeds in that lot, but it really, what's the success rate of that is going to be, you know, so what are some things that 
that we that from your study you sort of looked at and were like, these are what you need to do to be successful? Well, that's a great question. So the first thing is exactly what you said. You need to talk to the municipality that manages the vacant lots. In Cleveland, it's a city land bank, and it's probably also a city land bank in Pittsburgh and other cities. And find out from them what sorts of rules and regulations are uh, appropriate for vacant lots. Uh, for instance, we had to lease the lots and take on some responsibility for uh, any kinds of um, activity that happened in the lots, like if someone was to get hurt in the lots and things, it's important for groups to understand what they're taking on when they, when they take responsibility for maintaining a lot. The next thing I would say is to get with the neighbors that are living in and around the vacant lot. Some folks that are really focused on conservation absolutely love tall plantings of wildflowers, but you have to consider the context of this. This habitat is going into an urban area uh, that can have a lot of densely packed residential habitat around it or not. It could be very open. There's a lot of variability. But we need to consider what the people that are living around the lot think about it and what they want for their this site. There are many ways we can create bee habitat. Um, but there are also a lot of ways you can really aggravate humans. We all have our aesthetic preferences, right? And so you don't want to put something in that people are not going to enjoy and feel is an, uh, a benefit to their environment. And that is what we really saw with some of our native wildflower plantings. They can look uh, to a lot of people as very weedy um, and messy, which are not characteristics that a lot of people find appealing within landscaping. And this is something not everyone is gonna agree with me on. Um, there are some people that feel that native plants should be used regardless and that we should, um, I've heard people say things like, well, we just have to get everybody up to speed on their benefits. And certainly we can provide people with information to their benefits, but I think that scientists and conservation planners also need to consider and work towards how we can meet the needs and preferences of the community too. We both have to maybe bend a little bit on what we want so that our outcome has a long-term effect for conservation and community development. So for instance, um, in our wildlife plant plantings, we did things like mow a border around the site um, to make it appear more framed um, Dr. Joan Nassau wrote a really um, influential paper called um, Messy, I'm going to butcher the title, I think it's Messy Habitats with Orderly Frames, but what she was saying there is that you want people to understand that something is purposeful in the planting. We also put fencing and mulching and other um, cues to care to illustrate that these habitats were not abandoned, that these wildflower habitats were purposeful, but that doesn't necessarily mean that those efforts were successful. We still did have some people um, who found them to be messy. And so if I was going to do this again, um, what I would do is focus on a smaller number of sites within the city and work with community groups to determine what they wanted to see in the lot um, right from the get-go, because you don't want people to tolerate something. You want them to design it with you uh, if it's going to be part of their neighborhood. It, it's funny that you mentioned, you know, working with people and different people's viewpoint on viewpoints on 
what is aesthetically pleasing. Um, you know, a, a lot of people in our area like to go to parks and, and state parks and hike. And um, those tend to be the kind of people that I associate with. And they think just, you know, a place like uh, Cook's Forest State Park, which isn't too far from us that I'd go semi-frequently. And they think it's just beautiful because all these trees and these big tall trees. And I look at that and I think, well, yeah, I mean, I guess it's pretty, but that's not good for deer. That's not good for turkey. That's not good for wildlife, right? So I prefer the the tangled mess of a of a um, recently, and when I say recently, you know, maybe three or four year old timbering uh, project, you know, where there's treetops and there's all these, uh, you know, six foot tree saplings growing everywhere. And it looks like, man, I don't even think I could walk through that. I think that looks good because that satisfies what I think when I think of conservation. So it, it's funny that you bring that up uh, because it really is when, when we talk about conservation, it really comes down to being able to cohabitate, right, with, with our natural world around us. Um, and that's basically what you're doing is trying to bring some of that nature back into the cities using that, that land. Yes. Um, and, and make it a win-win, something that, that people find enjoyable and want to, appreciate, want to experience along with um, a habitat that is used by the insects. And we did have a lot of people find our habitats very pretty. Um, people wanted to, to pick wildflower bouquets, show young people the insects that were there, things like that. And that was, that was wonderful. And that was what we were going for. Uh, so we, de we definitely saw a lot of benefits, but we just, we really want to advocate for more inclusion uh, in our conservation planning. And that even if everybody's not on the same page from the beginning, that process to get to the same page, even if challenging, is so important. Because when you make the time to invest in putting something like this in the ground, it's expensive time-wise and just to get all the materials. And so you know, you want everybody to see it through long term if you're going to put in the effort. So uh, is this when you're select, you select this lot and then you do, you know, a vacant lot or multiple ones and then you start doing the plantings and managing it, is it a very hands-on activity or is it sort of a, a lot of upfront work and then just sort of let it go? In, There's a lot of activity. <laughs> you do not want to just let it go. I could say that for sure. And we do see some abandoned habitats around the city here and there. And I think that leads to even more issues when a group does want to put something in. People are concerned they might walk away. Mm -hmm. So that's another suggestion I would have to people is to build capacity in your organization so that someone is there to manage the site all of the time. So we had a large team that managed these lots. We went out every week to clean out trash and anything that had been dumped. We have a lot of tires dumped in our sites from um, outside companies that would come into the city and do this. We had problems with that. Um, of course, we had mowing and trimming to do around our signs and around those borders that I mentioned every um, couple of weeks. Uh, at the end of the season, we would cut the sites down. Now in a real prairie restoration, you would burn the site in the fall. Obviously that's not a good idea in a residential area. So we would cut it to a height of eight inches in the fall. And that was an important management for a few reasons. Um, in the fall, when the plants dried down, 
they really did look unsightly to a lot of people. So we needed to mow them for that reason. Um, and we left all of the brush in the site. So the seed heads and things were put back into the site. We didn't remove them, but it just made it look kept up. Um, sign replacement was a frequent um, need in the sites. We also did have some fence um, damage that we had to keep up on. So yeah, they're fairly intense. Although obviously the bulk of the, the seeding and everything, that's your first year. So we uh, removed the turf, we tilled, we added compost and micronutrients, and then we um, broadcast seeded these with native wildflowers at the beginning of the project. And, and obviously, as you stated earlier, if you were, if you would get more of the community involved, at least in the planning, you probably would have a little bit more involved volunteer involvement from some of the neighbors as well to help like, oh, I see, you know, a, some trash blew into it or something, I'll go in and pick that out. Um, so that would help to sort of spread out that um, responsibility of maintaining the site a little bit more. I mean, obviously I, I wouldn't expect a neighbor to go over and you know do, do some trimming and mowing and things like that, but um, to be able to sort of help with a little of the maintenance and upkeep, that would definitely help, correct? Absolutely. So in this case, it was a research study where we had taken on ownership of managing these lots. And um, for reasons due to the, the way the lease was, we weren't able to have any volunteers that we organized work in the sites um, during the research study. We had to maintain, um, for safety reasons, we were the only people that um, we paid undergraduate students to come out with us to help us. But I was um, there with my graduate students managing the crews that would go out and do this work. So one of us um, that wasn't an OSU employee would be there. Now this was a research demonstration project. So that's a lot different than an actual conservation project where you would be working with a community group. And in that instance, absolutely. I would encourage um, participation by anyone that was interested from the community to help with all the activities. Um, and then that way, you know, you're really providing people with an opportunity to engage in conservation. Um, when you come in and do things and don't include people, that's, it's not going to be a beneficial activity, right? No one, people are going to be confused why this habitat is going in um, if they're not involved in the process. So as I'm listening to you talk about how people, neighbors interacted and, and how they viewed this, these now vacant lots that have been reestablished with native flowers and, and things like that. I see a fringe benefit of by bringing nature to urban populations, there's a possibility that maybe some of those people in those urban settings might find themselves drawn back out to more rural areas to, even if it's just for a couple hours on the weekend, uh, to go on a hike or to use um, our rails to trail system that we have in Western PA, right? Is that, am I right in assuming there could be some fringe benefit in getting urban people interested in the outdoors? Well, I think, you know, when we live in a city, we become more separated from nature, right? That's been studied a lot. And so, yes, when you bring nature home, Doug Ptolemy wrote a, a book about how to create a wildlife yard or landscape, you know, we sort of had that idea in mind with these um, vacant lots. They were at one time 
yards, right? And so by creating wildflower habitats and incorporating native plants into these former yard spaces, they're right there in the middle of people's residential habitats. But what I didn't really fully understand was how much we needed to consider these habitats as part of the residential landscape. So as you drive around any residential community, you see mown turf, flower beds, you know, clipped trees that are, you know, pruned and well cared for. And so, and fencing and other landscape elements, shrubs, things like that. And so the wildflower plantings, while, you know, really pretty in many people's mind, did not fit within the aesthetic of a, of a normal residential landscape. And I think to the extent that we could have made them look more like a residential landscape, this project could have had the same success for bees, but been much more palatable and exciting for people. And so my big take home message for conservation folks is that, you know, I know it can be easier to seed with wildflowers and that it might be aesthetic that you enjoy if you're someone that goes out to parks and enjoys prairie habitats. But look around the community at what types of plantings other folks like too and consider that in your planning. So there are many native R's for instance where a native plant has been bred to be shorter or less likely to fall over at the end of the season or something like that or have a longer bloom period. Could something like those plants be incorporated in more bed-like habitats than wildflower plantings? I think those are the kinds of questions that urban conservation folks ask um, when they're planning a project with communities that maybe wouldn't be relevant if you're doing this in a more rural setting where these wildflower plantings um, fit the aesthetic and preferences of the area more, more appropriately. I, th I think that's, that's very well said. And looking at a couple of the pictures that are included um, with the, the research, I see that there's, you know, different attempts made at trying to structure it a little bit differently. Um, you know, one that looks more like just a wildflower patch. Uh, and then another one looks like it has uh, some dugout areas. So it almost looks like more raised beds. Uh, That's type. a rain garden. Habitat. That's a rain we were, garden. Yeah, we were showcasing that, you know, there are many types of urban conservation. And that rain garden habitat is an interesting one because it's very managed. So there's a large pit in the middle that has some submergent wildflowers planted in it that look very garden-like. They're planted in sort of a circle. And then you have beds all along the edge of the rain garden pit and surrounding it is mowed turf grass. It looks very kept up. That planting actually also received some negative feedback. And so we included that just to show that even when it's very kept up, you will face you know, a mixture of feedback, but the more um, planned managed habitats, at least in our case, were preferred by people versus the more messy looking wildflower plantings. That, that's interesting that that one would be need more upkeep. Um, I don't know. Well, a couple problems with rain gardens is when it rains, garbage goes with the rainwater into the, the pit. And so you need to constantly be out there removing the garbage and debris from the rain garden to keep it looking nice. Another major concern that people have is mosquitoes. So when people hear rain garden, they think 
oh my gosh, is this going to create ponded water and will there be a mosquito problem? Uh, these rain gardens that we feature, these are not my sites, this was done by the Northeast Ohio Sewer District, but uh, they are designed to drain. And so they do not uh, increase uh, habitat for mosquitoes in that way. But um, without that being clear, you could easily hear the name and think that there might be a problem. Yeah, and I mean, hearing um, a little bit about rain gardens, you know, I know that water runoff for urban areas is of a major concern, um, whether it's too much water at one time, uh, washing sediment into creeks and streams and eventually rivers or uh, taking contaminants into those water supplies as well. So this, you know, that rain garden would be a very viable way to help try to limit both of those cases and allow that water to slowly go back in less sediment and then hopefully filtering out some of those contaminants as well. It is, and it's another, it's another similar type of, of um, list of steps would be needed for this kind of project to also, I think, reach its full potential. So I think the sewer district did a wonderful job in their design of the plantings. I think it looks really aesthetically pleasing to me, but did they work you know, with all of the community that live around it? I know that they did hold meetings. I know that they did try to do that. So I'm not saying that they didn't try to do that, but we all can do better to engage people in the actual care and maintenance of the site as well. Um, and to get their feedback and how the plants are doing and maybe make iterative changes so that the habitat um, is looking its best and also fulfilling its goal of reducing stormwater overflow into Lake Erie, which is a really important benefit that this particular one was focused on. Um, so yeah, I think, I think it's a very, uh, very important endeavor. And with our paper, really just trying to encourage ecologists who really are excited to aid their conservation targets to not forget that you're working in a community of people and that those people are part of the project. Uh, I don't I don't think that could have been any better said. Uh, Mary, thank you for coming on and giving us a, a general overview of, uh, of your research. Um, not something that uh, us rural folk think about a whole lot. Uh, we don't really think about conservation being an urban issue, but uh, I'm really happy to share this information with the listeners so that they can see that uh, there are many, many opportunities to uh, exercise their conservation muscles. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Well, everyone, that's going to do it for today's episode. First, got to thank Mary for coming on. Uh, unfortunately, we couldn't uh, get the schedule to work out to have her grad assistant Katie come on, but that's okay. Uh, they're both going to uh, be on in the future. I can feel it. I love I love the things that they're doing. Uh, and just as, as Mary said, you know, th this isn't something that's very important. Uh, you know, we can take these otherwise 
useless spaces in our cities and in our towns, uh, in our boroughs, and we can put them to good conservation use. So like Mary talked about, this can really be scaled at a grassroots level. So uh, get together with your community members and start talking to the uh, local officials. Uh, you know, we can not only beautify these areas, but we can put them to use in a way that can help defragment uh, some of the wildness that we have, right? And we can really help get uh, conservation uh, into our local communities. And then, hey, who knows, maybe even inspire a kid or two to uh, really look into conservation and go into that as a field. I mean, the, the, the positive effects from doing something like just uh, reworking and replanting a vacant lot uh, just are tremendous and, and really just infinite. Uh, so I really want to thank Mary coming on to talk about her research. I think this is a great thing and we need to really try to get more of this involved, uh, more of us involved in doing these kinds of things. Uh, you know, and as always, as I'm always talking about on here, if you enjoyed this episode, if you enjoy the podcast, share it with some friends, some family, uh, some colleagues, right? Um, you know, that's really how we're really growing is word of mouth. So let's try to keep that up and keep that that sort of, uh, that momentum moving forward and, and reaching more people with some, what I personally feel, and I know I'm biased, but my personal feeling that these are just tremendous topics and just such interesting content. So share with your friends, family, and colleagues. And as always, you know it's coming. Stay wild. <laughs>